1: Hello and welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Pro Athlete Supplementation. Check them out at pas-nutrition.co.uk for all your supplementation needs. And don't forget that subscribers to the Rugby Renegade program get a 40% discount on retail prices. My name is Jamie Bain and we are back with episode 27 of the Rugby Renegade podcast. Today I have the fortune to interview Christian Thibodeau, great strength coach based over in Canada. Uh, he's worked with All array of different athletes and sports he's played rugby for a period he's competed in Olympic weightlifting uh, American football and bodybuilding Uh, he's worked with CrossFitters, he's worked with so many different um, athletes, he's got a huge amount to learn Uh, read a lot of his books which um, really impacted my uh, coaching and and training methodologies Um, so it was great to pick his brains, uh, go into something he's working a lot now on uh, neuro profiling um, to help programming and tons more he's just you know full of information so I'm sure you'll enjoy it give it a good listen and let us know what you think. Hi Christian welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast great to have you on why don't we start by you just telling us a bit about your background how you got into strength and conditioning your own career as, a, as an athlete and some of the athletes and teams and sports you work with.
0: Well well, well basically it's, uh, it's kind of a funny story because growing up I was always like that I wouldn't say like fat, out of shape kid, but the kind of guy who was average in pretty much everything. My, um, I always wanted to be a good athlete for some reason. I always pegged myself as very physically average. I mean, I, I wasn't particularly good looking. I wasn't tall. I wasn't wasn't muscular. wasn't faster or anything. And I, I had self image issues and self confidence issues all the while growing up. I mean, I'm, I'm um. I have two brothers and a sister, and like one of my brothers is a, do- a doctor and a you know, big successful family. So I always had that self-confidence issue and always look for sports uh, to try to get above average. Sadly for me, I was pretty bad at everything I played. I mean, I played uh, American football for, for 10 years, also coached for 10 years, uh, also played rugby for three years. Um, I played golf competitively until I was 19 and then of course I branched out to Olympic weightlifting once my football career was over and the main reason was that uh, I picked up lifting uh, because I was a below average athlete and I I thought that this was the way for me to separate myself uh, to become uh, slightly better than average. And it worked when I was in high school until I was like 16, 17, because I started training with weights at at, 70, at 14, and I always I always was doing like lots of squats, power cleans. In fact, when I started training at like 12, the first two years I trained, uh, I only trained legs, uh, because I figured, well, I need to run fast, so... I always started training the right way, and that gave me a good advantage when I was in high school because these guys didn't train back then. Yeah. But once I reached college and then training was more of a commonality, uh, than skill or the lack thereof uh, caught up with me. Uh, but I, I, I had a pretty good lifting background, and once I stopped competing in football, uh, I, I found that you know, I was actually better in, at lifting than playing sport. So I competed and trained and competed for Olympic weightlifting uh, for six years. Always done really badly in competition because my stress management was always really bad. I could never understand why until I started working with the neurological profile, which is my my new brainchild that I'm, I'm really talking about a lot in my seminars. Uh, but uh, suffice to say that my mindset is not geared toward peaking or performing uh, under under stress, especially in individual events, when I'm this the focus of attention. Uh, so I was always much much better in training than in competition. My best lifts uh, in the gym were uh, like 142 kilo snatch and 170 kilo clean and jerk, and in tra- and in competition it was 125 and 155. So there was a big difference there. Also my my uh, my, my technique because back then we didn't have youtube we didn't have seminars and i didn't have any olympic lifting coach in my area so i basically learned like reading books and stuff like that so i had below average technique but i, I was squatting 270 and front squatting 220 so i i had good base of strength but my technique was all over the place but anyway that, that's pretty much my uh, the extent of my athletic background uh, wh- i tore my left bicep so i stopped competing olympic weightlifting did some bodybuilding a bit uh, th- doesn't have the st- I don't have the structure for it or the desire to take uh, the amount of chemicals needed to perform well in that sport. But I still enjoy the process and I do still enjoy working with bodybuilders. Now, as far as as a coach being concerned, is uh, I work with athletes from 28 different sports. I mean, name the sport, I probably work with some people in that sport, ranging from junior athletes to uh, Olympic medalists or, or pro athletes. Uh, I'm probably the only strength coach, and I really hate talking about myself or boasting, or th- that's really not me, but I'm probably one of the only coaches, if not the only one, who actually trained uh, uh, a bodybuilder who competed on a Mr. Olympia stage a- and a CrossFit athlete that competed in the CrossFit Games. That's how extreme the variation of my clients are. Nowadays, I'm doing a lot less coaching because I'm doing what I truly love, which is teaching. I'm I'm like my father. I.e., was a college professor. What I really love doing is teaching other people uh, how to better themselves. I, I prefer to be uh, like a counselor that, than like someone who coaches on a day-to-day basis. That's really what I'm good for, or good at. So that, that's pretty much the extent of uh, the resume of my my career, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. Also, yeah. of course, I I, I coached. I coach American football for 10 years also, so that's also have, a, I think that really helped me becoming either a better strength coach or also a better teacher, because when you have to interact with young people, and and in a group setting, in a sport setting, it really brings out the best in, in how you teach, how you transmit knowledge to people.
1: Yeah, definitely, and, and as you highlighted, a, a really broad range of athletes and sports you work yep. with and um and what i like about you know as i said i read a lot of your stuff and you've got uh theory and application and modern strength power methods Mm -hmm. and and black book of training secrets there's so many different training methods and techniques in there and obviously you need that kind of wide uh, array for the different types of athletes and sports you work with but how how would you kind of find out the best approach for each individual how how do you approach when you first get an athlete and kind of find out how you're going to approach their training with them
0: Uh, you can approach that question several ways. You can can look at simply the physical aspect of it. Uh, And when you look at it, it's rather simplistic, but it it can still get the job done. In my opinion, uh, from working with all these athletes, what I notice is that most athletes are severely lacking in eccentric and isometric strength. When you look at programs, it, it always emphasizes the concentric or lifting portion, like getting stronger at lifting weights, with le- little regard uh, on on increasing your capacity to control the weight on the way down or hold a weight in a static position. Uh, I mean, some people like include that, like a, a, in the form of tempo training. So, for example, they will just like give the general recommendation of well. Uh, lower the weight under control, and try to explode on the way up. That That's better than just like going up and down, up and down, up and down. But it's still not enough to maximize the development of, of eccentric strength. I mean, if you want to maximize eccentric strength, you have to use methods specifically designed to train that capacity. Here's the thing. Uh, each type of muscle contraction uses a slightly different recruitment pattern. You, you could become really, really strong concentrically, but suck eccentrically. I'm going to give you an example. Uh, a few years ago, I, I was doing a program uh, for about, let's say, eight weeks where all my lifts were started from a dead start. So, for example, on a bench press, I would set the safety hooks in a power rack about one inch from my chest. And would start every rep from those safety pins. So it, it was pretty much full range of motion, like one in short. Uh, and I didn't have the benefit, of course, of the, using a stretch reflex to lift the barbell because it started from a dead start. My reasoning was that I would really build concentric strength from that start of the movement, which was the problem for me. Uh, I actually was able to work up to 190 kilos that way. So uh, then after my cycle, I said, well, I'm going to test my bench press. I mean, since in a regular bench press, you can use a stretch reflex. I'm at least going to get 195, 200. Uh, And I was really surprised to fail at 160. Uh, Just the, the, the eccentric just felt weak, uncoordinated. I couldn't control the weight. But more importantly, when it was a transition point, transitioning from the eccentric to the concentric i had an inhibition instead of a potentiation because i did not train that type of contraction so so if you want to maximize eccentric and isometric strength you need to use methods specifically designed to emphasize those contraction types and these are super important for both sporting performance and injury prevention it's well known that the stronger you are eccentrically relative to your concentric strength The lower is your risk of injury musculoskeletal injuries. So right off the bat, that's a big benefit But also you have to understand this if you want to be powerful uh, I mean like producing lots of force when you're sprinting so you can accelerate push hard against the floor or change direction super rapidly you need that eccentric strength because each time your foot hits the floor well you have to absorb the force of your body moving downwards then reverse that the weaker you are eccentrically the more distance you need to absorb the force which of course prolong the length of the eccentric phase so that me that makes the movement much slower because it takes you a lot longer to go from absorption to projection it might be just a matter of milliseconds but if you are taking 20 steps in a race that's a big difference uh, when it comes to top speed same thing when you're changing directions if you have to absorb a lot more because you're weaker eccentrically then you're Change in direction is much, much, much slower. So you really need that strong eccentric strength to be able to switch direction really fast. Now, isometric strength is also very important because eccentric strength is correlated with how fast you can absorb force. Isometric strength is how fast you can translate from or transfer from eccentric to concentric so what let's say I'm I'm changing direction. So I'm I'm moving on my my right absorbing with my right leg then I first have to absorb the weight and the shock of my body then I have to stop the movement then change direction so it's eccentric isometric concentric so if you have one of these three that's weak that's where the, the chain breaks down and you get slower so, so that's why I, I really believe with athletes, especially when you're starting working with people with experience that never uh, emphasize eccentric and isometric, you really need to put more emphasis on building eccentric and isometric strength. Now, that's more for the physical aspect of it. I also, my, my recent work is more geared toward uh, using an athlete neurological profile or psychological profile to... to decide what kind of training fits that person the most i mean you have personalities or neurotype that have a very high sensitivity of dopamine to dopamine and low dopamine level these are the natural sprinters like the natural competitors people who are going to win those people who are on always off or off so either it's all out or it's just lazy as shit. So these people need very frequent training because every training session gives them that dopamine high that their nervous system craves. If they don't get it, well, they're going to look for other ways to get that dopamine rush, which means in Lehman terms, they're going to do crazy shit. They're going to... Run their bike at 200 miles an hour. They're going to have three mistresses. They're going to take drugs. They're going to binge out eating food. Uh, They're going to engage in high risk sports. They're going to like extreme sports because they need that dopamine rush. So if you train these people only four days a week, then they're going to do crazy stuff on their off days, going to get injured or stuff like that. Now, the problem is that they can, they can and should train frequently, but because they have low dopamine levels due to their high sensitivity, they crash really easily. So they can't train with lots of volume. I had an athlete who was a, a national bobsleigh athlete, extremely powerful, pure dopamine-dominant personality, uh, sex addict. Uh, when he didn't train, he had drug problems, Ex- extremists in everything he did. Uh, you, everything was a competition for him. Well, I mean, the guy, the guy ran a uh, 4 40-yard two, two, dash at a 42-inch vertical. Bench press 225 for, 30, uh, for 36 reps. Uh, at, uh, he was uh, 80 kilos. So that's pretty impressive. Nice. Power clean 150. Just crazy athlete. One of the craziest athletes I've worked with. Uh, but he could do at the most six to nine work sets in a workout. Not per exercise, for the whole workout and nine was pushing it, six was more than the norm. If he did more than six, all his biological markers indicated a very, very high stress response and it impacted his next session. So these are uh, what I call the easy art gainers. These guys can get super strong, super powerful, super explosive, but it's always gonna be hard for them to build muscle because they can't do the amount of mechanical work that will trigger the required amount of protein synthesis to grow muscle. So these are the natural sprinters, for example. Natural sprinters, sprinters are muscular, but they're not big people like 80, 82 kilos, something like that, unless they're very tall like Usain Bolt, but even then Usain Bolt is like 85. Uh, so you, they're not like huge people, but they're normally very lean, very fast metabolism, uh, and they function on high adrenaline. So these people, of course, you would go with, toward the more high-intensity training because if you give them anything uh, like above six reps per set, they're going to shoot themselves in the head. They, they can't do it. First of all, because of their fiber makeup, because of their neurological profile, they just get bored during the set and they just stop functioning. These guys more, no, normally one to five reps works best. And again, very little work set. Once the warm-up's done, maybe 30 minutes, 35 minutes of workout time, that's about it. They need more rest interval between sets, otherwise they burn out. These guys need to minimize adrenaline production during training. Uh, the reason is simple. I mean. Well it's simple but not really but they are super sensitive to dopamine right that's why they get that high response every time they do something crazy that's why they crave it they crave doing crazy shit because it makes them feel good well training can have the same effect if you have the right type of stimulus which is high neural drive training now the thing is since when you are a very sensitive To a hormone or a neurotransmitter, it also means that your baseline level of that hormone or neurotransmitter is low. If I'm insulin sensitive, it means I do not need to produce a lot of insulin because my body easily responds to it. If I'm resistant to insulin, then I need to produce tons of insulin because my body doesn't respond to it. So if these people are sensitive, super sensitive to dopamine, they don't need to produce lots of it. So their level is fairly low. So, but, but they get a rush from training. But if that rush is maintained for too long, it crashes because they can't produce lots of it. Now, you have to understand that adrenaline is produced from dopamine so the more adrenaline these guys are under the more likely they are to crash their dopamine these are the guys when they are competing either playing a match or doing a sprint competition lifting competition these are the guys who will be dead mentally for three or four days after the event because they had such a high adrenaline rush from their competition that, that their, their dopamine crashed afterwards. So of course there are supplementation that can help with that nutrition, but, but it's still fairly unavoidable. You can limit the, the bad effect, but it's still something that's going to happen. Uh, my good, a good friend of mine is a competitive powerlifter, and every time he has a meet, he's crashed for seven days, which is stupid when you think about it because in a powerlifting meet, you base and he's a bench press only competitor. He only competes in a bench press, so he has only three heavy lifts in the day. If you count the last two warm-ups, which are fairly heavy, it's still only five heavy sets, five heavy reps. No way that crashes him because he's training a lot more than that during the week. The reason he's crashing is the adrenaline rush from the competition, which tanks, is dopamine, and he's no good for seven days. So these guys need to minimize adrenaline these guys need to minimize the use of stimulants which is really hard because they are hyper responsive to stimulants they, they they are they crave it they can easily become addicted to them so, so that that's one thing so that's one type of course we i have five types and each type will have different variables when it comes to a uh, different application of the variables like when it comes to intensity volume frequency training split rest intervals training methods intensity zones, stuff like that it, it, it all because training has an impact not only on the muscles but also on the neurotransmitters and on the hormone the hormones so everything has to be taken into consideration i mean some people well you, you you will have them do a workout that seems perfectly in line with their goals and objective yet they don't get resolved because they get bored to death I always give the example of German volume training 10 sets of 10 reps which is a great hypertrophy program well I tried to do it I almost stopped training altogether because it, it made me hate going to the gym because it doesn't fit my profile I'm a low rep guy so so you if something is very good on paper if it goes against your neurological profile then you're not going to get maximum results from it, and you're not going to get motivated from it. So, so you need to understand how to blend the goal and needs of an athlete with his neurological profile to find the best combination of both.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And just going back to um, talking about the eccentric and isometric
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, training, uh, I know in sort of previous uh, programs and in, in your book, uh, you would sort of set one so it's just whole body training. Uh, Program three days a week, and you do an eccentric day, an isometric emphasis day, and a concentric day. Is that something you still do, or have you? It's funny
0: you mention that because uh, I'm in the process of writing uh, new training programs for my website, and the program I'm writing is exactly like that. Well, actually, to be precise, the first phase is is exactly like that. There we have four training days: uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. So Monday is eccentric emphasis Wednesday is concentric and Friday is isometric and then Saturday is more conditioning work with uh, which decreases eccentric action because it's like farmers walk prowler sprint stuff like that which has very little muscle damage if anything at all. So it's actually not something that will negatively impact recovery. Uh, So the last two workouts the isometrics and the conditioning work produce little to no muscle damage. So it's actually fairly easy to recover from. Then you have the two harder sessions, which are on, on Monday and Wednesday. But, yeah, one is emphasizing uh, eccentric, one concentric, one isometric, and one is more conditioning work. Uh, so that's the first phase. But the, I call it the foundation phase. Uh, the reason why I call it the foundation phase is because I want to build a foundation of mind-muscle connection and muscle control being able to use your muscles optimally in every type of contractions then the next phases are built uh, either uh, to emphasize one contraction type if that's something that's problematic for the athlete or just focus on increasing performance on, on the big lifts but it, it also in- includes uh, four weekly sessions uh, which are all uh, whole body sessions yes yeah
1: and I, I guess it, it varies from sort of athlete and, and client. Um, yeah. But do you, do you still stick to a lot of um, whole body sessions?
0: Yeah, actually, uh, I, for athletes, I do. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the for with athletes, the the two structures I use are either whole body or upper lower, or a combination of both. So, for example, uh, I could have uh, like whole body, upper body, whole body, lower body. That's something that could be done. So you're training each structure three times a week. It could be whole body three or four days a week. With one, would be, one would be conditioning uh, or low stress training like bodybuilding work, stuff like that, if the person needs more muscle mass. Or it could be upper, lower, upper, lower. Now, the upper, lower works best, in my opinion, with intermediate athletes. Beginners respond better, athletes, I mean, of course, bodybuilding is a different thing, <laughs> but, but, but uh, with athletes, beginners will respond better to whole body training, uh, first of all, because they need to become efficient in the basic movement patterns, and the more often you practice them, the better you become at it. So, so squatting three days a week would be better for a beginner than squatting once or twice a week because you're practicing the movement more often. Remember, motor learning is not about quantity, it's about frequency. So if you're training your lower body three or four days a week, you're going to learn much faster. Now, beginners, uh, they can't yet use enough weight to jeopardize their, their recovery. Uh, because they simply cannot use their whole potential yet uh, because of nervous system inefficiencies or protective mechanisms that are overly protective or conservative. Now, when you move to the intermediate, intermediates will respond well to an upper lower split four days a week, so each muscle structure being trained uh, twice a week. Uh, The reason is that their foundation of movement efficiency is pretty good. So they don't need as much motor learning. They're also at at a place where they can use more weight. But they might not have built the resiliency to training yet because they don't have put in the years of training. So an intermediate is strong enough to traumatize his, his body at each session but not resilient enough to recover super fast from training when you're more advanced you've been training for 10 20 years your body is used to physical stress and it recovers faster from it so when you move to the more advanced stage that's i think where the whole body training becomes effective again so it goes It depends on the athletes you're working with. But the difference is that with beginners, I would do whole body four days a week. Uh, And with advanced, it would be whole body three days a week, especially for an athlete. Of course, I'm not talking bodybuilder. Now, if they want to throw in a fourth session, it would be like, an easy pre-ab or beach muscles or uh, movement patterning, technical practice, something that is, very, uh, that is non-traumatic. Because with advanced athletes, uh, they can train at such a high level at every session that even with three weekly sessions, they, they will trigger gains but they can push so hard that they can impair recovery. So they, do, they even though they are capable of recovering faster, they need more recovery time. The muscles recover faster, but their tendons, uh, their nervous system might uh, get fatigued more easily just because they're using a lot more loads. Now, the muscles adapt, but your skeletal system, your hormonal system, your your ligaments are pretty much the same as they were when you were intermediate or even beginners even the tendons are not that much stronger so, so that's where you you risk injuries
1: yeah definitely Touching on to tendons and ligaments there um and some of them might come out of this question is i know you've you've looked into kind of old-time strong men. Yep, yep. Uh, lifters like you know George Hackenschmidt and, and people like mm-hmm. that what, what do you think are some of the sort of best lessons you've learned through research in sort
0: of old school strength training that, that's a very good point I mean I have three passions in my life uh, the first passion is training the second is history the third one is politics uh, well I, I when I was in college before studying exercise science I was actually a, a political science major uh, then I switched to because you can't get a career in that so i i uh, i decided to switch to train uh, to, to uh kinesiology and my minor was history my my, my my brother is a history teacher so that's why i always loved the history of training uh so the, our old school trainers did train and the reason i i love what they did so much is that they didn't have all these fancy tools So they needed to be imaginative to find different training methods. Also, there was no internet, very little books. Information was scarce. So they had to experiment by themselves. And you didn't have like the bro dogma around. So they didn't care if something they tried looked foolish or not. Because nowadays, people will not want to try something that looks weird because they're going to look stupid in their commercial gym. So people just stick to what the rest of the the crowd's doing. And you have very little innovation going on uh, because of that, in my opinion. I mean, we have all these cool tools, but people are not experimenting with really what's important is how to load the muscles different ways and these old school guys were all about that and they were on average on average much stronger than people are today Uh, they built tremendous physiques without the advantage of using drugs or even supplements Uh, they, they didn't eat six times a day uh they, they oftentimes work physical labor jobs and they were still super strong like bob people paul anderson work on farms uh, and they build strength that is yet to be equal today. You know, paul anderson squatting uh, uh 500 kilos uh bob people had a, a body weight of about 80 kilos uh dead 350 360. i mean these guys were awesome and they they had great training methods And they they may do it what they had to for example, one of my favorite old-school method that I still use to this day That that, that's a method that gave me my the greatest gains in both squatting strength and bench pressing strength was uh, Paul Anderson neurological carryover training method uh, also called the progressive range of motion training a method that Bob people also used for his deadlift now Bob people what he did was he had a deadlift bar loaded up on his in his backyard. And the bar was loaded with the objective at the end of his training cycle. So let's say it's 250 kilos. So he has 250 kilos on the barbell, and, and he dug a hole where he would stand to grab the bar. So when he would start his training cycle, the hole was, was pretty deep. So the barbell at the starting point was maybe like one inch above his kneecap and with that target weight 350 kilos he would do as many reps as possible for one two or three sets depending He might get 20 reps at first because the the range of motion is so short but every session he would put a little bit of sand uh in the hole uh, filling up the hole so the range of motion would increase every workout or every two workout and he would still use the same weight still trying to bang as many reps as he could of course over the weeks the number of reps would decrease because the range of motion increased but by the end of the training cycle he would be able to lift that target barbell from the floor Uh, what i really like about it is that you stick with the same weight for about eight ten weeks but you're gradually building your body's capacity to handle that weight i mean Your muscles already have the capacity to lift the biggest weight you lift in your life. It's just a matter of allowing your body to use that strength. And the limiting factor normally are your protective mechanisms preventing you from using that strength potential. So, for example, if your body right now can lift uh, 200 kilos, well, if... You use methods in which you can load the body with 220 using partial range of motion. And for 8 to 10 weeks, you're handling that same 220. You're convincing your protective mechanism that that 220, which is above what your body is supposed to be doing, is safe. Because I'm banging out reps after reps. Your body doesn't know it's not full range. It only knows that the body is under load. And by very gradually increasing the range of motion, then you are transferring that strength over a fuller range of motion. But you're preparing your tendons. You're preparing your skeletal system. You're preparing your whole body to create tension to be able to support that excessive weight. That's what I love about this training method. In my opinion, it's a much gentler way of training for strength then using full range and trying to add five kilos every week using a weight every week that your body has never lifted before represent a tremendous amount of stress whereas in that case you are gradually habituating your body to be able to support that weight of course it's something that you need a uh, good technique with because the big problem with the neurological carryover training is some people will uh, put their body in a false position for example in a deadlift when they they are above the knees they will wedge their knees below the bar raise their torso making it like a quarter squat instead of a a true inch movement you have to respect the exact same positions you're using in the full lift
1: yeah i love it it's just a, a really simple I mean, it takes yeah. takes a bit of patience, but just a simple way to well, you know, it, get really strong it takes
0: about a big man. That's the big, and that's what people lack today. Yeah, exactly. People, are like, if you're gonna lift for the rest of your life, why do you care about what you're gonna be lifting in, in four weeks? I mean, you don't have to beat a PR every single, single, single day. If you could only had five kilos per, like two point five kilos per week. Well, it would make you 100 kilos stronger every year. That that just doesn't make sense. So, so regardless of what method you're going to be using, there's a limit amount of weight you can move to. But how you get there will affect, well, are you getting injured in the process? I mean, you, you can probably, using linear progression, constantly add weight for six to eight weeks before you hit a wall. But in the process of moving toward that wall every week you are overloading your tendons your ligaments a bit more and your body instead of desensitizing itself it turns more and more and more into protective mode what happens look at what people have happened when they try to add weight all the time it works for about four or six weeks then at six weeks mark The weight stagnates. So they hit a wall, they still try to push hard. What always happens, what always happens, their strength goes down. It always goes down. Why? Because the body can't handle it. And instead of desensitizing the protective mechanisms, your body feels something's wrong. And it increases the sensitivity of the protective mechanism, which prevents you from using the strength you have. I mean, if you're not losing muscle, if you're not overly tired, there is no reason why you're losing strength, except that your body is not allowing you to use the strength you have because it wants to protect itself.
1: Yeah, exactly. I and mean, key point now is that the nervous system is, is key to everything, isn't it? Yeah,
0: of course. It's the boss. Yeah.
1: Uh, right, so let's. Um, you've touched on conditioning a little bit, um, and it's yes. something I was going to ask you. Like When working with athletes who... Are already you know doing a high volume of training, whether it's technical, tactical, strength and conditioning. Um, if you've got an athlete who needs to lose body fat, how mm-hmm. do you how do you approach that? Because essentially you can't just keep doing more and more. If you don't no,
0: that's a and there's a, a corollary to that also. I believe that training, and that's one mistake a lot of coaches make. Training is designed to work to improve what you need but are not getting from the training for your sport. So so let, let's take a, a rugby player. Well, a rugby player during the, the, the practice sessions an anaerobic capacity and even aerobic capacity is being trained. So it's not like you need to train a lot of it during training, but you see tons and tons of strength coaches doing tons of anaerobic capacity work because, well, they need it in their sport. Yeah. But they're doing it six days a week, five days a week in training. Same thing with MMA guys. The MMA guys, you see them doing all those circuits, strongman. It's great. I mean, I love strongman stuff. Uh, But why do circuits? I mean, they're already doing conditioning work in the ring. They're working something they're already getting. Use those strongman activities mostly for strength. Now, as far as losing body fat, I'm going to be really old school here, and I really believe it's all about diet. Uh, as you mentioned yourself, uh, I don't like just to keep on adding work and adding work and adding work and adding work because you're going to run into problem. You won't recover. So what good is it to lose 10 kilos to be faster if your nervous system tanks and you actually get slower? Yeah. So to me, there is, unless it's like off-season and then you can actually manage to be slightly fatigued for about two months that's fine but but if the athlete is actively trying to perform overworking or increasing the workload is never the solution especially in season so so it, it does come from diet i mean and honestly uh, when you look at an athlete if he's practicing his sport four or five days a week either through games or practices and having three strength training sessions well if he has a, a body fat problem then he's probably eating shit yeah. I mean, of course some people are naturally built usier. i mean some people naturally carry a, a higher level of body fat uh, and that's normal like a like a hooker won't be built like a winger of course but that's genetics i mean you take a guy from samoa you won't have the same build as someone from jamaica right uh, but, but that doesn't mean he can't be fast, athletic, and healthy. I mean, if, if I have a, like a big Samoan guy, I'm not going to try to have him have a six-pack. I mean, I just want him to be healthy and to be able to function optimally for him. And if I try to get him like a 10% body fat, I'm going to ruin him. Yeah. So it's all a matter of being functional. And really, if someone has a real weight problem with all that activity, then diet is a problem and then you also have to think about the future because they won't be athletes forever so if they have a weight problem right now and they're training 30 hours a week what it's going to be like when they retire and they're not training i mean that's why you have all these guys dying at 50. that's because they keep on the same shitty eating habits after they're playing sports and they get really obese and they have heart problems yeah so i think I, it's part of the job of a coach just to teach these athletes better life habits.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, and also you say when it comes to habits, and, and if you're adding in extra conditioning sessions, that's more fatigue, it's more stress, and that, that makes it harder to stick to you know a, a strict diet plan, if you know what I mean?
0: Of course. I mean, that, that's such an important point. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the region of the brain that is responsible for performance, for, for discipline, willpower is the same. Yeah. So, so the more tired you are, definitely uh, the more you're going to be looking for food. I mean, uh, the more stressed you are, it always comes down to stress. And training is a physical stress. It increases cortisol. Uh, so, so the more you increase stress, the more you'll be looking for food to decrease that stress. Right? Look at it this way. You have neurotransmitters that are excitatory. they excite the neurons, making you amped up. So you have dopamine, and you have adrenaline, and to some degree, acetylcholine. Uh, then you have the inhibitory neurotransmitters. The neurotransmitters that calm you down, that bring you down, that decreases neuronal activity. You have GABA, and you have serotonin. Now, it, it, every time you train, you increase, this, you increase the excitatory neurotransmitters. So you need to bring yourself back down afterwards. So that's why the more you train, the more you will use serotonin to calm yourself down. But if you're dieting on top of that, then you, you are tanking, you're crashing your serotonin. Because if I'm dieting, I have a carb deficit, for example, serotonin will get low. And if I'm overtraining, I'm constantly depleting serotonin to bring myself back down after my session. So what happens? When, when serotonin crashes and you keep training hard, well, you don't sleep. It's impossible to get asleep. So, so you don't recover and you have even more of a problem. Then now cortisol stays high all the time. When cortisol stays high, what happens? You, you, you develop blood sugar problems. You become insulin resistant uh, and even more even worse than that now that serotonin is down you need gaba to be the main inhibitory neurotransmitter and then you crash gaba when you crash gaba what happens you become depressive you have anxiety attacked and you become insulin resistant so now you're dieting but you're not losing fat because you're insulin resistant so it's a vicious cycle man so so it's really all about balance an athlete is not a bodybuilder a bodybuilder is using growth hormone using thyroid hormone using clenbuterol stimulants to be able to function when they're down uh, they're using of course steroids that that maintain muscle mass some are using dnp that basically doubles how much calories they're using without even training so, so these guys can go on a starvation diet they're basically zombies they they, they, they can I mean, i've been there I, mean, I had a photo shoot i mean i was in bodybuilding just a photo shoot and even my dogs didn't like me anymore because i was, they just sensed that i was an asshole <laughs> because my my dope my, my my gaba and serotonin crashed so, so bodybuilders the strategy they use to get lean is not the same as an athlete who needs to perform yeah You can't perform if serotonin and GABA crash because you're anxious, you have an increased response to stress, you you choke under pressure, you you have no motivation, uh, you crumble under pressure, you can't rest, you can't sleep. So that's why you can't both fix your diet and overwork. And with athletes, the answer is never overworking, especially with high-level athletes. High-level athletes are Formula One racing cars. I mean, they are so fragile. I mean, they are, there's a very narrow range of the amount of work they can, they can do without crashing.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it's just a, an overall understanding of stress, isn't it? That uh, you all know, about stress. E- everything is a stress. And if you totally. throw everything at it, you completely ruin the athlete, basically. Um, yeah, I've got one and last so- question that I know, I know you've got to so- get off to the gym. But- yeah, go, go ahead um, i know you've got to go off to the gym so one last question which i've got to ask you as you said you've competed in bodybuilding um yeah. and obviously work with bodybuilders and athletes mm-hmm. but how would you approach um increasing lean mass on a rugby player
0: what i really like uh for for increase well first of all you have to think about is the athlete really is in need of muscle mass i i, I can't I can, and put myself in their shoes, and even some of the shoes of the coaches. I'm going to tell you two stories. When, when I was a kid, I was like 19, uh, going from high school to college. I was looking, and every young athlete does that, all right? Every young athlete does that. Uh, he, he's getting ready to go up to the next level, or maybe he wants to play pro. So he look at the roster of the pro teams or the college team or the team that have the, the highest level let's say i i i was a football player i i played linebacker uh, i was uh 80, 88 kilos and i look at the, the the chart and i don't see a single person like under 100 kilos so, so i i need to get to 100 kilos to be able to perform not understanding that these guys are about 25 I'm 17, so they probably gained that weight over time. But me, I did like all, what all the kids do, I want to get to that 100 kilos as fast as possible, and I and I did. In one summer, I bulked up to 100 kilos, and I got super slow, because I, I couldn't, even though most of it was muscle mass, I didn't get accustomed to using that muscle mass to move around, and I did lose speed. Eventually, I learned to use it, and I get, got faster, but it was too late. Uh, So so that's one thing. Also, sometimes the the, the sport coaches are to blame. Uh, I was training this football player, and he was also a linebacker, was about 96 kilos, and he was a starter. He was a very good player. He was the strongest guy on the team, squatting and deadlifting. Uh, Now, they changed the coaching staff, and the coach said, well, if you don't get to 103," You're not gonna get this. You're gonna lose your starting job because he was from that mentality that bigger is better. So I told him, well, you know what? You're already not the fastest guy. So if you go up to 103, even if it's muscle, you will get slower because you're not just that built to be that that body that body type. So I actually had him, uh, we just train for like normal, and I told him, well, at you know, the weigh-in, just put weight plates in your pockets. And it was a joke, of course. But a few months later, he called me up and he was laughing on the phone said, well, dude, it worked. What worked? I put weights in my pocket and I was <laughs> 104 <laughs> and he was a starter. So that's just stupid. But but some athletes genuinely need to to gain muscle mass, especially in the younger athletes. Uh, when you're working with a younger athlete, anyway, uh, building muscle mass when you're working with guys who are like 14, 15 should be a priority uh, because. Of course, we're working with athletes, right? So athletes, strength is the most important thing to build because strength is a foundation to power. Power is a foundation to speed. Speed is a foundation for agility. But without strength, a, a sufficient amount of strength in, in all three types of muscle contraction, you can't get fast, you can't get powerful. But, but you have three main ways of getting stronger. The first way is increasing muscle mass a bigger muscle is a potentially stronger muscle i say potentially because if you're not nearly efficient you're not able to use that muscle size the way i I can explain it is that the size of a muscle is like the size of a factory like the the bigger the factory the more employees it has the the greater its potential to produce pieces cars or whatever or whatever the 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 is for is is building now if the employees don't work together if they're lazy or if their boss is is not smart then you're not going to be able to be productive but you have the potential now the second way of increasing strength is neural efficiency neural efficiency is making the employees work well together uh so that's uh intermuscular coordination it's making each employee work harder. That's intramuscular coordination. Or you can have the boss be a better boss. So that that, that is the general uh, muscle recruitment pattern, general uh, neural efficiency muscle fiber recruitment or, or rate coding and stuff like that. Uh, so that's the second way of getting stronger. But, but if you maximize neural efficiency but you have no muscle mass, well, you still are gonna be limited in the amount of force you can produce. the third way and i briefly touched on it earlier is the third way to get stronger is to desensitize your protective mechanisms Uh, the average person can use about 30 percent of its strength potential Uh, a a pretty good athlete maybe 60 70 percent world-class athlete 80 90. uh and you have like these the exceptions like the world record hole in weightlifting that might use 95 percent of the potential so so just increasing that, the, reducing the protective mechanism can also make you stronger. Now, the building muscle mass is what younger, less experienced athletes should focus on to increase strength. You don't need to go like 90%, 85% to build strength when you're a beginner. You, you can use more bodybuilding rep ranges like in the 6 to 8 rep ranges or even 10 reps per set and, and get stronger. Now, when you work with intermediate, that's when you have to focus on methods that will increase neural efficiency. And when you work with advanced athlete, you can work more on desensitizing the predictive mechanisms. So, so the big mistakes I see is when strength coaches, because they are so much geared to thinking, well, I have to improve performance. And they, do, they don't, they work with young athletes and they don't focus on building muscle mass. That, that's the best time to build it. Because when you have athletes who are 22, 23 years of age, well, you can still build muscle, of course, but but the, the amount of work they're doing and also the lifestyle change they have a lot they're much much busier and much more stressed and more than when we were a kid. So the, the amount of volume needed to build the muscle tissue might put them into recovery overtraining state. So, so it's much harder to keep building muscle when older athlete than with a younger one so it's really a matter of proper prioritization over many years now if you still have an athlete that is older and and he does need to build muscle mass uh, you really take into consideration that building muscle tissue creates more fatigue uh, it's longer to recover from from a muscle perspective uh, and it might actually impair sporting performance so uh, it's it, it's really a hard thing to do what i like is uh eccentric less volume uh because i re- i still believe that building muscle requires a pretty high amount of mechanical work um, to trigger maximum protein synthesis but if i'm doing like more sets of squats more sets of deadlift they're not going to recover from their session so they can do their regular weightlifting session then had eccentric less work lasting 30 to 40 seconds per set like uh, heavy prowler pushing uh, for every performer's walk uh, or any like sled work uh, for the upper body uh, stuff like that that, that that where there's minimal eccentric loading uh, of course that doesn't replace regular lifting but that is an increase in mechanical work that can further stimulate protein synthesis without negatively impacting recovery. So, so that's one tool that, that, that you can use. Uh, but but with, with more advanced or older athletes, it is a complex situation, especially since the more advanced someone is, and I'm not necessarily talking about just lifting weight, I'm talking about like athletic background, athletic years. The longer you've been playing sports, or training, The harder it's going to be to build muscle mass because your body is resilient, meaning that it is used to working hard. So hard work does not represent a stress anymore, and the body will only build muscle if it is to fight a bigger stress than carrying the muscle itself. Because carrying more muscle is a stress. It requires tons of calories just to maintain it it requires more effort more uh, from the cardiovascular system to maintain it uh, it, it requires more nutrients so it's, carrying that extra muscle is a stress on the body so your body will only accept building it if what you did to force it to build the muscle represents a bigger stress than carrying the muscle and when you get very advanced athlete their body are used to handling the physical punishment and it's hard to reach a level that forces the body to build the muscle tissue. So that's why you really have to build muscle when, you, when you're working with younger athletes, ideally.
1: Yeah, that's, that's great. And again, it's it's come back to stress, uh, but yeah. it, it's really good, that example of using the sled work and the prowler stuff, the eccentric yeah. lifts work, well, uh, so you can get volume in with, you know, it's easier to recover from.
0: Yeah, during, like during season, uh, like in season, methods that I really like, to maintain strength and size are a combination of overcoming isometrics, like pushing or pulling against pins, like you set up in a power rack, let's say you're gonna do a squat, so, so you put the safety pin so that when you are pushing the bar against the pin from below, yeah. you're about like a 90 degrees angle at the knee, and you're pushing as hard as you can for nine to 12 seconds. Uh, so you do sets like that, that, that will maintain neurological efficiency to produce the, 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 so the neural aspect of strength, it, it, it creates zero muscle damage and it has a very low energy cost, so it doesn't impair recovery. And you combine that with prowler pushing. The prowler pushing will maintain the muscle mass, but there's no eccentric. So, so you don't create muscle damage either. So these, the combination of both with like a minimal amount of squatting, for example, like not you don't even have to go super heavy, just maintaining the movement pattern is more than enough to maintain or even increase strength during the season uh, while, while maintaining the muscle size also, and it will not negatively impact performance.
1: Yeah, I can actually attest to that because I had a player who couldn't squat because of an injury, and he just did, we did loads of prowler work with him. and he did six weeks of that and then came back to squatting, and he's actually stronger. So it just just
0: shows you how effective it it is. Um, I I, I work work with a a senior bodybuilder. The guy, he was actually um, uh, the, the owner of a gym I gave a seminar at. And he was a former national level bodybuilder when he was in his 30s. And he hadn't competed, of course, in 30 years. I didn't train hard in 15 because his legs were shot. Knees were completely destroyed. And he wanted to make a comeback. So he hired me only to train his legs, and all we did were various type of prowler and pushing and sled pulling. And he actually, is, at the competition, his legs were his best body part. He actually won the overall uh, on top of guys who were like half his age. So uh, there is definitely, if you use the right parameters, you can definitely build muscle size with the prowler. Yeah.
1: Okay, let's wrap this up, Christian. Because I'll let you get off to the gym. Uh, but just, just lastly, where can uh, can people learn more about you? And and are you are you writing a book currently on the, the neurological profiling?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, that's, uh, I have a a friend, uh, well, an intern from France visiting me at the moment. The guy is a specialist in uh, Chinese medicine, and uh, we are collaborating on that neurological book because I find there's a lot of consistency with Chinese medicine and the five profiles I'm using mm-hmm. so we have one week to work on that uh, so that that's part of it but I'm also coming up with an online certification uh, that should be up by December on how to use uh, neurological profiles to adjust training how to assess a client uh, so it, it's gonna be it's gonna be lots of fun that I really believe that it, it, it that's where I want my career to go. I, I, I love training methods, and I, from coaching many different people, I know that different people respond to different training methods, different training approach, and, and I'm tired of all that process being it and miss. I want to give coaches a tool to know right from the start what kind of training a uh, client will respond to. So now you of course, it's not the only thing, but you need to look at it. Like, legs or shorter length and that uh, if you have more fast switch fibers that might have also play uh, an impact if you have a certain hormonal profile it might also dictate volume or frequency and stuff like that uh, so, so there there are many different variables to look into what I really believe that since you mentioned it also by yourself a few times it's all about stress management uh, and if training become if training goes against what your brain is wired to do, it increases the stress response and it makes it a lot harder. So that's one more tool, but I think it's a very important one.
1: Yeah, definitely. So uh, what's your website? Just give us your website URL. just so the uh, well,
0: I have uh, tibarmy.com, so T-H-I-B-A-R-M-Y.com. Uh, we have uh, three videos, two articles every week. Uh, we have a forum, of course, uh, and also have a contribution sometime on on, on T-T Nation, which I've been there for about 15 years. Uh, so, and also I'm all all over the world giving seminars. I'm going to be in um, uh, in November, in September, I'm in uh, Poland, then I'm in Bahrain, and then November I'm going to be in France. Uh, and Germany, and also in Boston in the U.S. And then the real tour will start in January.
1: Oh, cool. That's not even the real tour, Crikey.
0: <laughs> you know, well, it's it's just the end of the year. It's just yeah. like the practice stuff. <laughs> oh, awesome,
1: awesome. We'll, we'll of course share um, links to that in the show notes. But um, Christian, thanks so much for your time. Um, could have, I'm sure we could have gone for another hour. But loads of really good, so. really good. Maybe, really maybe
0: good two hours. Well, we do that. Should that again? Should do that again? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. What I really appreciated is that we talked about training. It seems like nowadays everybody wants to talk only about neurological profiling. It's cool because I really love it, but it's really fun to talk about training methods again.
1: Oh, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thanks, Christian. All the best. All right, take care, man. So there you go. I'm sure you'll agree. Loads of great information there, whether you're a player or a coach. And thanks, Christian, for taking the time to talk with us. And we will schedule a round two. And, you know, there's so much stuff we didn't cover. Uh, we need to sort of scrape the surface of it. And, and we'd love to venture back there and find out some more. In the meantime, guys, of course, please subscribe to us um, and give us a five-star review. It really does help us out. And, of course, check us out at RugbyRenegade.com where we build machines.
0: Thanks for listening to the Rugby Renegade podcast. For more quality rugby strength and conditioning information, check us out at RugbyRenegade.com. Rugby Renegade, building machines.